turn with me, please, to Psalm 14. I understand that as some of you turn there, you would wonder why, after the events of this week, we would preach uh, the next passage in our series. Sometimes it just seems like we, we should do something else. I understand that. I don't think anybody has felt that, that pressure of decision more than I over the last 24 hours especially. I do want to help you understand how I came to this particular decision to stay in Psalm 14. Uh, the first reason is because um, I never cease to be amazed by the power of God's providence in sequential exposition. Sequential exposition is just when somebody says, we're going to study this book and work our way all the way through it. When I try to anticipate things, when I try to modify things, I, I tend to miss the mark. And when I just stay with the text, it seems to align us with exactly what we need in the moment. I mean, who in this room would have been able to predict that we needed Psalm 13 last Sunday to prepare us for the lament of this particular week. Somebody would look at Psalm 13 and think, man, why is this guy preaching this? What's his problem? He seems really bitter and angry. If you read Psalm 13, you'd understand why I say that. It's just the next chapter of the text. In fact, this is something that I've seen in a previous circumstance this year where we were working through Philippians chapter 3, and then our own beloved Joseph Darwin lost his sister right after we preach a particular passage on finding satisfaction in Christ for everything, and he would tell me after the events of the funeral, I am so glad that you were committed to working through a text. And can I tell you, for those of you who may know uh, the dear brother who passed away to be with the Lord yesterday, his last words to me regarding the preaching was get back to sequential exposition. He was fine with our doctrinal series. He didn't mind me hopping around from passage to passage, but he said, Justin, if anything, get back to chapter by chapter, verse by verse exposition. So I think that this would honor him. A second reason why I think uh, that this is especially appropriate to do today is because the family is not here. They need a funeral service. They need specific words of comfort. And I don't want to try to preach a message for the family when the family's not here today. You're here today, and you need God's word. And so you can pray for me as I prepare a funeral message, assumedly, later this week for the family. But this is not a funeral service. This is the time where we gather together to worship our Lord, and we're sensitive to what's going on, but again, the prayer is, may all our days bring glory to your name. We want to glorify him in this time. And then, the third thing I think is especially helpful and relevant, and there's just one more personal note. This particular passage I knew to be one of our dear brother's favorites, uh, I think I can say this fairly. I don't know that I was his best friend, but I was a friend for sure. And outside of a member of my family, I've never lost anyone closer. So I knew him pretty well. We had lunch together every week. And his favorite podcast was titled, or is titled, Wretched Radio. <laughs> think of that. Who would want to listen to something called Wretched Radio? I've never listened to the whole thing from start to finish, but I know what it's about. The reason it's called Wretched is because uh, the, the particular broadcaster is so consumed with man's depravity and his sense of need that he thinks it drives us to God's grace. 
And it is this very passage that Paul will later use in Romans 3 that we read earlier that describes this wretched condition that we all are in apart from Christ, ultimately setting us up for hope that can only be found in Christ. So let's just let God's Word do its work this morning. Psalm 14. To the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. It was some 50 years ago this past April that a Russian cosmonaut would enter into a realm hitherto unknown by the human species. The name was Yuri Gagarin. The, the feat, the mission, if you will, was outer space. And it's a stunning thing to think about because his eyes were the first human eyes to see the heavens apart from the encumbrances of terra firma. It's an interesting thing, the way rumors get started. Because it's been widely reported that uh, his words, upon having seen the heavens for the first time, back down to mission command there in Russia, was, I looked and looked, but I did not see God. It's kind of an interesting thing. Because as researchers would begin to try to trace out the history of that statement, it seemed odd to them. Because Yuri was baptized into the Russian Orthodox Church as a child. And even a few months before he went up into space, he had his daughter baptized into the church as well. On top of that, he regularly attended services at Christmas and Easter. Now by this, I'm not saying that uh, he was a Christian by any means. But it just seemed a little strange that somebody with such an Orthodox upbringing would, would actually make such a bold and defiant statement. And ultimately, as would be true of most and all Russian propaganda in that particular period of history, it was made up. Nikita Khrushchev was the one that actually put those words on Yuri's lips to further his anti-religion campaign. This was confirmed in 2009. And so here posters were plastered all over the country of Russia with this guy floating out in space with just three, I mean, four words, there is no God. They were so committed to eliminating for the normal Russian people the category of God's existence. Why? Because they saw it as a challenge to their human authority. They wanted to retain their human control. In fact, I mean, at anybody in that particular era, and I just met someone who lived through that a few weeks ago. This is a fact. Uh, publicly saying that you believe in God was a surefire way to ruin your career, or at worst, earn a one-way ticket to the gulag. It was eliminate the idea of God at all costs. And so you largely had a society of people who did that. Some in word only, uh, but some in heart indeed. 
Not much has changed over 50 years. Certainly, our ethos, our culture is a little different insofar as most people today don't mind if you claim to believe in some kind of God. Many people do. Maybe a country like China would be more oppressive than that, but even Russia in its own modern day, even though they still enforce some type of anti-conversion laws, uh, they have no beef with the Russian Orthodox Church. They have no problem with religion, so to speak. But there still is this movement, this undercurrent, that really hates for people to actually believe that there is a God because it challenges their morality and authority. Do you not feel that in our current culture and climate? As people, for example, will continue to propagate sexual ideals that are just blatantly in distinction to that which would be revealed in Scripture. Or just think of just the the, the general material that is being pumped through like the public education system in the United States today. There's no mention of God and His authority. In fact, those things are tolerated. They're not celebrated. And friends, I have you know that in light of this, uh, you are in a, a minuscule minority. Not in saying that you believe in God but in actually believing in God. It puts you on the outside of things. It puts you in the minority. It makes you a target. And that is exactly what the psalmist here is lamenting. In the first few verses, you're going to note this descent. He's going to go down farther and farther the rabbit hole and just show about how, like, look, the whole world uh, doesn't really believe what the righteous believe. They they behave in a way that would contradict wholly everything that you stand for and value. And as he brings us down to the depths of despair, he will then bring us back out again with hope that there's a hero despite the fact that we're outnumbered. I want you to notice the two movements of this particular psalm today. The poem is providing comfort for the righteous. Those who are outnumbered, the moral and theological minority, if you will. And here's how it's going to comfort you. It will first acknowledge what I will call the pervasiveness of impiety. The pervasiveness of impiety. That's in verses 1 through 4. And that only sets up the main point, which is to affirm the protection of the Lord. The pervasiveness of impiety and the protection of of the Lord in verses 5 to 6. Let's look at the problem, pervasive in piety. I would not have you forget that when you see in the text those first few words to the choir master of David, that this is a song that would have been sung corporately. I mean, some of you would look at this and think that, oh, this is like some isolated blog post. This is some angry fundamentalist just writing out like all his thoughts about how the society is just morally decaying. But I would have you understand that this is not a minority opinion. What this is, is actually enshrined worship of God himself. He would have his people acknowledge the reality of the world situation in which they're in. And I would have you notice that right off the bat, that the psalmist is going to dive us into the depths of despair by introducing to us a particular category of person known as the fool. You see it there. Our text says, the fool says in his heart. But in the Hebrew text, there's no article. It's a fool. It's it's a generic category of individual. And, And this particular person Uh, When you hear that that word, fool, it would tempt you to think that he is somehow intellectually deficient. Like he is stupid, he's an idiot, he gets bad grades in school. But the scriptural category of fool, as it's used here in the Psalms and especially in the book of Proverbs, is not an intellectual category, it is a moral one. It is a moral one. One scholar helpfully explains, it isn't, I mean, it's more focused on the religious and moral insensitivity rather than a defective intellect. So what is it that characterizes the fool, this this particular person? 
Well, this species of individual uh, is operating by a guiding life principle, and here's, here's what informs their, their heart. There's no God. Uh, in the Hebrew, it reads, God is not there. They operate their lives as if God is not here. He, he has nothing to do with what they do in the day-to-day. I want you to notice that this mantra or this slogan uh, is the claim of his heart. It's not the claim of his head or his lips. Some of you are going to look at this and you're going to think, oh yeah, I don't know that many people who actually say there is no God. Well, that's not exactly who it's talking about. It's not talking about what you say. It's not talking about what you type. It's talking about what you say in your heart. Now, in ancient Near Eastern thought, the heart is the control center of the entire being. It isn't just like your mind, although it could include that. It isn't merely your emotions, although it would include that. It is what we more often refer to as the will. It is the cockpit of the individual. It is the driver's seat of the soul. It's the kind of thing that um, is, is better reflected in one's to-do list, calendar, and bank account more than it would be reflected in what they would write in a philosophy paper. Do you get the idea? The psalmist is not thinking of some intellectual elitist like a Richard Dawkins or a Sam Harris. He is speaking of the man or woman who operates their life as if God does not exist. They make their plans as if God is not around, and that could include a good number of individuals in this room. I say that kindly. Positively, the fool may say that God exists. You know what? The fool, listen to me, could sit in a service just like this and sing every one of those songs that we just sang. But what would actually make him a fool or her a fool is that he or she may even claim and believe this and sing it, but it has no practical bearing on their life. Their life looks no different than the person who would say or sing that God does not exist. Negatively, the fool may not deny God's existence or even be open to God's existence, but again, this concession does not affect where the plane of life flies or where the car of the soul drives. And because of this divine frame of reference that's lacking from them in their decision-making, this naturally plays out in a lifestyle that is antithetical to everything that God appreciates. Notice how the text continues. He says in his heart there's no God, but this has uh, consequences. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. Uh, The the word corrupt there means that they are basically uh, causing ruin. They they spoil things, they they cause destruction. They're, They're toxic. This is hard. This is very hard language, but just let God speak for a moment and we'll provide some remedy. He says they're like flamethrowers. They're, they're, they're like diseased. They cause all kinds of destruction around them. On top of that, they also do that which is abominable. Now, there's a word we don't use very often. In fact, I don't know that I've ever used the word abominable outside of the phrase, the abominable snowman. What does it mean? It means, this is the fancy way to define it, morally incongruous. It means that it doesn't fit. That's the most basic way I can put it. It doesn't fit. Maybe it's applied to the snowman because he doesn't fit in normal society. I don't know. But when we are talking about this as a category, it means that one is fundamentally incompatible with God, that the actions that they do are grotesque to God. They are out of place. They are repulsive to the divine nature. I will not bore nor entertain or distract you with another story about a rat in my dwelling place. 
I've told those before, but I will tell you that it happened again. Last week, as much as I did last time, it was repulsive. God says that the person who operates in this way, the person who flies the plane of life, who drives the car in this way, they cannot help but do things that are repulsive to God. And just as I would want to see the elimination of any threats to the health or well-being of my home, so also God longs to see these things eradicated. That is what holy God thinks of any who would operate their life in such a way that he does not exist. And then to add insult to injury, the text also tells us that there is no good. They do no good. I'm looking at some of you uh, process that statement for a second, and I can hear the arguments just, I mean, through your eyes. (laughs) You're like, I know a lot of people who don't functionally uh, act as if God exists, and they do good things. They're really nice. They're nicer than the Christians that I know. I hear that all the time. I hear it especially from uh, business guys. Like, oh, I don't want to, I don't like Christians doing work for me. I'd rather work, you know, have a non-Christian. They do good work. Like, I I get the objection, but we need to be careful that we're defining good in the way that God would. Good, in the eyes of God, is doing the right thing in the right way for the right reason. God's observing all three of those categories, the what, the why, and the how. The right thing in the right way for the right reason. And so all of us know people who, who are doing what seems to be the right thing, and they seem to be doing it in the right way, but they may be doing it for the wrong reason. Could you, could you imagine how my uh, bride would feel if uh, I said, um, I'm bringing you some flowers, and we're going to go out to eat. And I love you so much. But it's only because I want her to do some type of favor for me. That's called buying affection. Prostituting somebody else's feelings and well-being so that you can just feel good about yourself, so that you can get what you want. It's called manipulation. And you know what? Guess what? People do that with God. They do the right thing. It seems to be done in the right way, but it's only because they want what they want. They don't care about God and His glory and His honor. They just want a more comfortable life. They just want to be preserved from any harm. They just don't want to go to hell when they die. They don't care about God. Uh, Some people will do the right thing, or excuse me, the wrong things for the wrong reasons. We know plenty of those. That category is too too plain. But let me mention one more category. Some will do the right thing for the right reason, but they do it the wrong way. In other words, they have the right what. But I remember the guy's name. It's Uzzah. And he's, he's helping transport uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the dwelling place of God on earth. And, and like it just makes total sense to him that as this thing is, uh, is crossing the river, the, the cart that it's on like hits a rock, and it's about to fall into the muddy river. And do you remember what he does? He reaches out to try to keep the thing from hitting the ground like that. <laughs> you were scared of that, weren't you? That's exactly what happened. That's an expensive iPad. If I could have reached my hand out, it just makes total sense that he would have stopped this thing from hitting the ground in the first place. And what does God do? Does he commend him for saying, hey, thanks for helping me out? He's, he kills him on the spot because that was not the way that God wanted it done. 
It was the right heart. He wanted to to uphold the glory of the Lord. And look, the reason why I'm pointing out this specific example is because some of us think that as long as somebody has the right why, that they get a free pass on the what and the how. They mean well. That's what we say. They mean well. I'm not trying to pick on any particular religious group, but this is most religious people in the United States and around the world. They may have the right heart, to reach out to God, but they have the wrong way, which is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And I even say that for the well-meaning Roman Catholic who may be gathering even as we speak this morning for Mass, who is saying, I want to worship the triune God of the Bible. The why seems right. The what seems right. But the how is off. Because they think they can actually worship this God through not only their faith, which is what the Bible says, but through the faith plus those sacraments. And it's just like reaching your hand out to help the ark. God will not have it. And so the text says that there's this category of people out there who are, this is the Bible's word, not mine, fools. And it seems to be a pretty bad class of individual. I mean, indeed, people like this, you can imagine if you're David, people like this could be problematic for the people of God, right? I mean, if you've got people like this around, it could be tough. But let's let's be realistic. Let's be be, sober-minded individuals this morning. I don't want to be wrapped up in in the emotion of the day. Think clearly with me for a second. Really, how many of these kind of people can there be? There's your next question. If the, if the fool is a special category of people, of person, I mean, how many are there? How many, how many fit into this category? Well, the Lord knows. The Lord knows. He's looked into it, literally. He's looked into it. Look at verses 2 to 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man or humanity to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Now, pause there for a moment. I, I want you to note the, uh, the poetic language that's here. Uh, we've got Yahweh, it's his special name, Lord is in all caps, the covenant-keeping God, uh, God specifically, not just God generically. It says that he's, he's looking down from heaven. Now, some of you read that and you're thinking like, oh, it just means God sees all things. God is omniscient. He knows all things. God is ever-present. He's everywhere at one time. Theologically, you're just saying like, yeah, okay, I get what he's saying. But that's not what he's saying. He would have said God sees all things or God knows all things. He specifically says God looks down on humanity. This same verb is used other places in the Old Testament to literally describe someone looking out a window and over it down at things outside it below. So what we have is a word picture. Again, it's an anthropomorphism. There's no window in heaven. God's not sticking his head out of anything. But what it's actually conveying is that he's done a thorough examination of everything that you could possibly imagine. It says that he looked down on humanity. That is everyone who is in the human race. So it's been pretty thorough. And what does he find? Look at verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together, they, who's they? The children of men, humanity, have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And what a sad song about the state of humanity. Could you imagine us singing this as a church? The way this thing opens, everyone is in the category of the foolish. Everyone has this tendency within them to live as if God does not exist. Everyone has turned from God's path to do their own thing. I'm modernizing the language here. Everyone has become corrupt. 
This is different than the other word. The other word for corrupt is actively spoiling and causing destruction. Uh, This word means they have become corrupted. They have been defiled. I want you to think rotten milk and furry strawberries. That That is morally what they are like. Everyone is void of good works. No one is an exception at all. No one. Not you. Not me. This is what God sees when he searches out the matter. And friends, we do not have to wait to hear what his final judgment will be about us. If you want to know what God thinks about everyone apart from Christ, everyone who is not a part of his special people, none of us were born into it, but what we are natively before God, this is it. Foolish, corrupting, abominable, ignorant, distant, unable. And by the way, I want to clarify something. This, this diagnosis that seems so pessimistic isn't the unique territory of the Old Testament. Some of us would try to solace ourselves and say, oh yeah, uh, that ornery Old Testament is so negative. I want you to understand that even... The Lord Jesus Christ himself would say in Mark chapter 7 that all of us are defiled in our hearts and nothing good comes out of us. Read it. I encourage you. Write it down. Mark 7 verses 21 to 23. You'll notice that it is in red. Jesus said that. Not only did Jesus say that, but Paul would build his entire gospel presentation around that. Uh, Two other passages I would have you consider, if you're questioning this in any way, is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23 and following. Specifically, he mentions the word fools there. That they, They knew that God had revealed himself, and yet they rejected that, and making themselves wise, they became fools. And then he's going to in Romans 3, 9 through 18, one of the passages that we read earlier today, he's going to say, this is everybody. He uses this very text. But in the meantime, the psalmist continues. Thus far, we've read of the problem as a general statement in verse 1. You, you kind of see it, right? And then we get the divine perspective. You, you notice that? God's perspective on the matter is in verses 2 to 3. Uh, something interesting happens in verse 4. Uh, the person Uh, The point of view switches a lot in this psalm. Now we're going to see the king's perspective. Remember I told you the other week that when you see uh, a Davidic psalm or a psalm of David, sometimes it means that David authored the psalms. Sometimes it means that it was in honor of David. This would be one of those psalms in which we can be confident that David was the actual author. The reason why is because he speaks as a king. Notice the perspective of the king, the human king that represented God in ancient Israel. Verse 4, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? So now David, as the psalmist, as the king, asks in exasperation, have they no knowledge? Do these people not know anything? I'll translate it in more modern uh, terminology. What is their problem? What's their problem? And then after asking that question, David then immediately identifies the object of his ire. He clarifies the source of his frustration. He says, what is their problem? Who are they? What's the, grammar geeks, you're like this, what's the antecedent of the pronoun? (laughs) Who's he talking about in particular? What's he so frustrated about? If he's saying, what's their problem? Not because he's really wondering what's their problem, but he's just exasperated, he's frustrated, Who is it that he's so frustrated at? Well, he's going to specifically make that clear in the second part of the verse. All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread. Now, this is a graphic metaphor. I've told you on many different occasions that that bread in the ancient Near Eastern world was a staple. It was something that you had to have. It wasn't just like the optional thing that you get to eat on your cheat day. You ate bread in the morning, you ate bread at night. It was just a normal rhythm of life. Well, the psalmist saying here is pretty mind-blowing because it's at this point, and I love the way one scholar explains it. He says, their evil deeds are characterized as casual acts of self-focused consumption that nevertheless have ultimate consequences for those consumed. 
Eating bread is the basic act of self-nourishment and sustenance. It is engaged in constantly, day by day and casually, with hardly any reflection. It is with an equally casual attitude with these evildoers that they consume God's people who will later be described as the poor. Um, How can I connect this for you? I want you to know that it is at this very point in the psalm is where the rubber meets the road. It may not seem like it, but I want to make a connection for you. This is where things can get real. Unfortunately, for many, it could be, I would say, I don't know, 75% of you right now, we could guess this. For many who would even gather in a church like this, uh, the doctrine of total depravity or pervasive impiety or this idea of society rebelling against God is merely some type of theological, abstract, hypothetical. Like it means, I mean, like as much as we all would want to be concerned for the glory and honor of God and, 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 and how he's affected by man's rebellion, for most people, that's just kind of like, okay, well, what, what does this mean to me? And it's in this text that it shows what it means to you. Because it is at this point that David is going to clarify that sinful defiance against God is accompanied by damage to his people. It doesn't just affect you. When people live in rebellion against God, it spells out real-world consequences for his people. Maybe the simplest way that I could illustrate this is the old anecdote. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Why would anybody ever come up with such a phrase? If somebody says such a thing, it's the dog-eat-dog world. That's very violent. (laughs) And yet, somebody says that, and we're like, yeah, it is. (laughs) It's pretty bad out there. Because we all know that apart from the grace of God in Christ, we are slaves to ourselves, and we will use and abuse anybody at any time to get whatever we want. To the world, you are a customer, a voter, a potential means for sexual gratification. You are a rung on the ladder for them to climb their way to the top. They will network with you. They will smile at you. They will send you cookies at Christmas. But at the end of the day, apart from Christ, we're radically committed to the well-being of numero uno, me, myself, and I. And David representing the people of God, is crying out in despair on account of the devouring of his people, the way that they are trampled upon by these others who are just in rebellion against God. And he says, not only do they consume my people, but they don't even cry out to you, Lord. Notice those last parts of the verse. This is insult to injury. Uh, They don't have any uh, appreciation for God whatsoever. Uh, What does it say? And they do not call upon the Lord. Whereas we, as the people of God, are depending upon Him, and we're crying out to Him, and we praise Him to give us everything that we need, they get everything that they need by taking advantage of us, and they don't even cry out to the Lord. They don't give a rip about what's happening in this church service this morning or in your private prayer time. And it looks bad. And the psalmist here, friends, we're at the bottom. We're at the bottom. He has thoroughly exhausted the problem. 
And with pathos and vividness, he has lamented the pervasive impiety of humankind, specifically elaborating upon the dishonor it brings to Yahweh and the damage that it brings to his people. This is the world in which we live. And they're surrounded. You know, this thing, this, this, this first part of the verse, it reminds me of that, that song in Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton, right-hand man. If you've never heard it, you don't have to. You know the history. As our nation would struggle for independence in its early days, uh, we were severely uh, outnumbered. There's one particular scene in which there are 32,000 British troops arriving in New York Harbor uh, to to face this this fledgling militia. The situation's dire. It's downright impossible. Miranda's song sings of it, and the chorus repeats this trouble over and over, and these are the words that it uses, and this reminds me of this song. We're outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. We got to make an all out stand. It just repeats over and over again. And what Lynn Manuel will do is set up every verse so that the solution is Alexander Hamilton. He's the one that comes to uh, the rescue, he's the one that delivers. But I want to just borrow the question for a moment. If, if that is indeed our state, if we are surrounded, if we're being preyed upon by those from the outside, if that's the realistic situation of things, from whence does our deliverance come? The answer is in verses 5 through 7. Look with me at verses 5 and 6 just to start off with. Here's the solution. There, notice there's a switch of scenery here. There, they are in great terror. Who's that? We'll we'll find out in a minute. For God is with the generation of the righteous. Whoever the they are, they're different than the generation of the righteous. Look at verse 6. You would shame the plans of the poor. Who's the you? So those same people. Whoever they are, they stand in contrast with the people in 6b. But the Lord is his refuge. Who's the hero? It's God. He's the one that delivers through this seemingly impossible situation. Here, the the author is going to uh, paint the pervasively impious, the world at large, into a couple of awkward settings. Uh, The first one uh, deals with uh, their relationship on the last day. And the second one deals with their relationship to the people of God in the present. So I want you to notice this future orientation that takes place in verse 6. See it there in your text. There they are in great terror. So here we are. We have this group of people, seemingly the unrighteous, uh, standing in terror, uh, to use the modern phrase, like shaking in their boots. The Hebrew phrase is they trembled a great trembling. They were terrified with a great terror. And what is it that they're so scared of? Well, notice the contrast For, because God is with the generation of the righteous. There will come a point in time where they finally realize that all of those people that they tried to malign and take advantage of, that some of them belonged to Yahweh, and He will vindicate the actions that were taken against them. It's subtle, but it's strong at the same time. This is envisioning that day where the Lord's Lord's anointed will come to destroy the wicked with certain terror. This is mentioned in Psalm 2 and in Psalm 110. And maybe one of the clearest expressions of this is Matthew 24, verses 29 to 30, when it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory." What a day of terror for those who do not belong to God, for those who are not numbered among his people. They will tremble. But on the other hand, on that day, 
we will be assured that God is with, and I love this phrase, the generation of the righteous. Friends, I realize I preach longer than most people, so that puts a tax on your mental capacity. I'm going to ask you to muster about 120 more seconds of like raw power to grasp this point because it's really important. You can coast with me the rest of the way, but I want you to engage for the next two minutes. Here's the most important question of this text for every person sitting in this room this morning. Who are the righteous? Clearly, there's this group that seems to like encompass everybody that's foolish. But as we continue to read the text, we find out that there actually is some people who have somehow escaped that category. How did they do that? What, who are they? The text calls them the righteous. These are the people throughout the Old Testament who have by faith been declared righteous. And by their faithfulness, they live in conformity with the will of God. They live as if God is indeed in the cockpit because they believe in their hearts that he is Lord. They have turned from their rebellion. They have trusted in him. They have professed allegiance to him. These are the ones who call upon the name of Yahweh, who depend upon him. They have been cleansed from their corruption. They are no longer rejected by God, but they have been received by him. In fact, they at one time truly belonged to the category of the pervasively impious. Read Romans 1 through 3. But here is the amazing thing about that particular passage that we read earlier. I want you to notice, because it could seem so dark, that as Paul goes through his list in verse 9, all the way down to verse 18, ending with, there is no fear of God before their eyes, I, I want you to see what he says in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, which we failed at, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's a group of people who have escaped the category of the pervasively impious. And who are those? Those who are depending upon Christ alone for their righteousness. I know that it may look bad and I know it seems like ultra uncomfortable to throw yourself into that category. But hear me well, you do not have to persist in said category. The text makes it clear that we escape this through faith in what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. He has paid the penalty. He has provided the power to overcome sin through his resurrection. And all of those who call out to him in faith have indeed been rescued. It says in verse 26, we read this as well. He did all this to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that group of people, listen to this, on that day when the Lord returns, some will be shaking in their boots and some will know that God is with them. That's what Randy Barrow knows this morning. God is with him. What he has believed by faith is now fact. And so we too hold on to that day, even though it seems like we're in the minority, even though it seems like the righteous perpetually get their butt kicked by this culture, there comes a time where you who believe in Christ will win. God was on your side the whole time. The text not only provides future vindication in light of this pervasive impiety, but I would have you also note that there is present protection. Look in verse 6. In verse 6, this is kind of funny, the psalmist is going to taunt the unrighteous for their inclination to shame the poor. And poor here is a metaphor for the, the godly, the, those without resources. Notice, he says to them directly, you, unrighteous people, would shame the plans or the intentions of the poor, but notice this, but the Lord, Yahweh, is his refuge. Refuge. Refuge is a valuable commodity in an agrarian culture. We're in refuges all the time. We have some of the most powerful storms, I think, on the planet 
on like a weekly basis. And we don't ever think anything of it. It's like, oh, there's another major thunderstorm outside. I mean, my whole house is shaking and everybody's just kind of looking around like nothing happened. Because we're used to shelter. But can you imagine what this is like in a culture of people who are either living in tents or mud houses? A refuge, then, is a shelter. It's where vulnerable animals or vulnerable human beings hide from attack from the sun. And so the poverty-stricken, the poor, guess what? They're the people who don't have shelter. They don't have any means. They don't have any resources. They don't have any protection. And so see the word picture here. It's like the righteous, they're without protection. It seems sometimes that God is doing nothing to defend his people. Like he's just leaving them open to attack. One sister prayed back here today and it struck me when we were praying for the family. She said, Lord, you allow, there are people, there are people who, men, excuse me, who abuse their wives and estrange their children and you've let them live while you allowed a good man who loved his wife and loved his children to die. I get it. You look around and it seems like you get no special advantage. In fact, sometimes it seems worse. It's like you got the wrong end of the deal. And yet, the text reminds us that God is a refuge. He is a protection for his people. He allows nothing nothing to harm them without his pre-designed good, wise, and just permission. You are invincible in the will and plan of Almighty God. So just an invincible, it doesn't seem very invincible. God has designs for every one of those things. The things that seem to harm you may be the things that ultimately protect you and provide for you. You just lack the perspective to see. And yet the psalm assures us that we are protected, even in the present. And in light of that, we pray for full and final deliverance. Look at verse 7. In light of what he knows about the future, in light of what he knows in the present, he still continues to cry out, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Notice this, he's leading, this is how this thing ends. It leads us to continue, even though we know how it's going to be in the future. Even though we know we are protected in the present. It leads us all to, in this very moment, cry out to God to reverse the misfortunes of his people. You still have something to do. You may be invincible in the plan of God. He is indeed your refuge. He will one day eradicate all evil. But in the meantime, you have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. And it is to cry out to God in faith to fix that which is broken. The, the, the language here is, is strongly nationalistic. Remember, this is a Davidic psalm. This time we're sure that, that David wrote it. So as a king, who would he na- be naturally concerned for? His nation. And so what does the text refer to primarily? His nation. Israel. Jacob. Israel. You remember from our series in Genesis that Jacob and Israel are the same person. They're just two different names. And so here they're just designators for the people of God. Of course, this includes promises that God has made to ethnic Israel, but it extends beyond that to all of those who belong to Israel by faith. And he says that God will one day bring deliverance, cry out for it, keep depending on him for it. And then there's that one confusing word for us that says, let it come out of Zion. What is Zion? What does that mean? 
Uh, Zion, friends, geographically was just the hill on which Jerusalem as a city was built. But that doesn't help us very much. What it figuratively means is it's a metonymy. It's actually referring to just an, one geographical locator that stands for the whole. If I were to say the hill, they made a decision up on the hill, you would know what I'm talking about. I'm talking specifically about Capitol Hill, and by that I mean the legislature. So also, in this context, they would have known what Zion was. Yeah, it was the hill, if you will, but it was the place in which God did His operating. It was the control center of the world, at least it should have been. Jerusalem was and always has been intended to be the capital city of the world, and the equivalent of what is being prayed for here is the same thing that Jesus teaches us to pray for in Matthew chapter 6 when He says... Pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When it says let deliverance come from Zion, it is saying let God operate from the place of his control. Let him come and right all the wrongs that seem all so strong. Let him fix it. And then I love these final lines. Notice them there in your text. In the meantime, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. It's coming. You pray in faith knowing, even if you are outnumbered, outmanned, outgunned, and outplanned, and you have to make an all-out stand, deliverance is coming from heaven. And so we pray. We pray not in doubt. We pray not wringing our hands, worried about the next day. We pray in faith, confident that God will deliver. It is interesting that when that propaganda was making its way around in the early 60s, one popular Christian author and thinker, even though, again, even though the statement wasn't from Yuri, it was actually from the communist government, would respond, When that Russian cosmonaut returned from space and reported that he had not found God, he says that this was like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle and looking for Shakespeare. (laughs) Friends, I I totally get this moment of transparency. I totally get in light of the events of the last 10 days that you're looking around and you're like, I'm not seeing it. But we're like Hamlet looking for Shakespeare. He operates in a different realm. And yet he has sent us a divine word. And and here's what that word tells us. If things seem like they stink here and now, you're right. That's what it says. You are outnumbered, you are outgunned, you are outplanned, you are the minority. No, you're not in heaven yet. Aren't you glad for a reality check? But aren't you also glad to know that our Lord has written into this play hope that the end of the script will end in a way that gives him glory and secures the eternal good of his people. I'll give you just two simple exhortations to those of you who are in Christ, to those of you who belong to the righteous. It's two things that I think you could hold on to, maybe pick one to carry with you this week. The first is I would encourage you to just praise God for your own personal change and your inclusion in His righteous family. You realize that that horrible situation in verses 1 through 4, that was you, that was me. And sometimes we forget where we came from. That's why we can sing praise this morning, even though it still seems that things are crumbling around us. At least we know that's changed. We didn't do that. We didn't earn that. Christ did that for us. We should praise Him. We are not that. We are not the enemies of God anymore. We are His children. So I don't care what happens. We can still praise Him. Our rock. Our Redeemer. Praise God. And then secondly, I would exhort you to persist in godliness. 
If that is you, if you are in Christ, persist. I get it. You are the minority. You are the outcast. You will not win the fights on Facebook. I am especially concerned, by the way, for those of you who have just stepped into a new school year, whether that be in college or in high school or in middle school. I'm just telling you, you've got it bad. I don't want to prophesy doom and gloom on the, you know, the final years of what should be the best days of your life, but let me go ahead and warn you, you probably won't win prom king and queen if you're following Jesus. And I don't, I don't say that harshly. I, I say that with a heart of compassion like the text does. It says it's bad. It is bad. But persist in godliness because it will pay off. And you've got to wait for it to pay off, just like I've got to wait for it to pay off. And if Jesus delays his coming, I get it. You have to wait longer than I have, but I've been waiting a long time too. And I look around and I see some saints in this room who have had opportunities to kind of let this thing go and pursue the world and everything that it would offer them. And you said no to that time and time again because you were waiting for something better. I commend you. Thank you. So in the meantime, let us all persist in godliness. Its best payoff is not now. I don't care what Joel Osteen says. I mean that. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. Your best life is not now. It is to come. Wait for it. Persist. And so let's close doing exactly what I just encourage us to do in praise. We're going to sing two songs of praise to God on account of the rescue and the help that He provides.